It's that time again. It's ASGCA Insights, the official podcast of the American Society of Golf Course Architects. And now, from our studios in beautiful Brookfield, Wisconsin, it's your host, Mark Whitney. Welcome to ASGCA Insights. My guest today is Jay Karen, Chief Executive Officer of the National Golf Course Owners Association. While he's been in that role since 2015, Jay's affiliation with NGCOA goes back a number of years, as he served the association for 10 years early in his career, and has also spent time as CEO of Select Registry, featuring a portfolio of more than 300 boutique hotels, inns, and B&Bs. Jay's welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot, Mark. Happy to be here. And I'm wondering, you know, why isn't Chad Ritterbush doing this? He's got a face for radio. <laughs> uh, since he's the one who signs the paychecks, I'm just going to let that uh, statement sit there for a minute. <laughs> Good. <laughs> you know, Jay, for anyone who's a golfer or a golf fan, chances are they have heard of NGCOA but I'm not sure how many of our listeners have a good understanding of your organization. So why don't you take a moment, please, and tell us a bit about NGCOA and how it is that you're serving your members. You got it, Mark. So uh, you're being generous when you, when you say that uh, golfers or, or, you know, have heard of us because we are very, we're a trade association. And so we, we do very little business that would be conducted in front of the consumer Although a lot of golf enthusiasts, as you know, love to follow up, you know, and follow the golf organizations and kind of what's happening in the business. So, um, but we are the quintessential trade association for the golf course ownership and operation side of the industry. You know, this is a, an $84 billion a year economic impact industry. And I, I, I think I estimate around 70 billion of that 84 billion, the nucleus of that economic engine is the golf course. And, um, and, and the cascading effect that it has on, on communities and the economy and so forth. And we are um, a 501c6 trade association. We've got nearly 4,000 golf courses as dues paying members of the organization. And we, we do a lot of pu public policy work in Washington or at the state level, sometimes even more local than that. Um, we uh, educate through Golf Business Magazine or conferences and trade shows, our podcast, the Golf Business Podcast, or recently the Golf Business Live uh, webinar series. And uh, we also negotiate deals for our members on various suppliers and, and vendors, uh, whether it's Yamaha Golf Cars or Pepsi or what have you, to, to give them a member advantage. Um, so that's kind of the, the, uh, the main buckets of what we do, Mark. You mentioned the, uh, the the live webinar series, which it it is really kicked in here over the last couple of months. What was what was the thinking behind that, and and how has the execution and the and the response to it uh, measured up to what you might have been anticipating? Sure, I, I must admit, about two years ago, I had given up on the webinar model. I was thinking that's you know the the webinar is dead, and then now long live the webinar, right? It's uh. I just thought it would, I remember the days when we first launched webinars in the association world. This is going back nearly 20 years ago. And that was the fresh new way to deliver education. And I, I believe it became stale over time, just a speaker showing slides and, you know, people logged in and listened and there was a chat feature, you know, just kind of a tired format and, and podcasts kind of had taken over as the, as the, uh, the new darling of content. Well, um, you know, this whole concept of webinars coming back was was because um, people couldn't go anywhere and they had time on their hands to consume this kind of education. Um, and in-person meetings are in doubt and are in question. And so if you don't know when the next time it is, you're going to meet with your fellow golf course owners or operators or 
get education from NGCOA in person, you might as well consume every morsel that you can in any way that you can. Plus, people in their personal lives and professional lives are using this technology more and more and more, whether it was FaceTime with your iPhones or Zoom and Skype and all this. So it's becoming much more of a second nature to people. So there's not as there's probably not as much resistance as there used to be engaging this kind of format. So it kind of a perfect storm, you know, uh, of, of circumstances to bring that back. And at the same time, the need for the education to, to navigate through this COVID-19 crisis, the need for that education skyrocketed. So that, that's why, you know, it's a convenient, quick way to, to deliver education that can be recorded and watched whenever, whenever you want to. And not just uh, the, the ability to educate, but also it seemed a, a, a thirst for education from the audiences that, that you're trying to reach out there, isn't it? Yeah, no question. I mean, it, everybody's has it was and still is in the situation of um, what do I do? How do I navigate this? And you know, especially when complex federal legislation is passed, and there are you know no less than twenty provisions that might impact your course or your business to some degree. You want to you want expert synthesis on on how to how to use it, how to interpret it, and and what to do next. And so, uh, so yeah, there have been plenty of opportunities in the past you know ten weeks. To, uh, to deliver education to an audience that that craves it more than they have that, that more than I've ever seen in my career. And let's talk about some of that uh, federal legislation because the the work that you've been doing on behalf of of your members uh, has paralleled that with a number of the other uh, partners in the golf in the golf industry. And I'm thinking one of the initiatives in particular uh, that you've worked on in coordination with with We Are Golf and your other industry partners, including ASGCA. Uh, is some of the past legislation that has prohibited golf and golf courses from participating in many of the federally funded disaster relief efforts. Uh, so can you provide a bit of an update on the inroads that have been made in recent months in this area? Sure. I, I don't, it's hard to pinpoint whether it was our efforts for the past you know, 12, 13 years or simply this is a different kind of disaster than we've seen in the past with regard to relief legislation. There certainly was more of a, a feel with this one that it's indiscriminate in, it, in its impact on businesses. No matter what kind of business you are, you're going to be impacted by this pandemic. And, and so, this, and this I, discussion does indeed go back 12 or 13 years, doesn't it? It does. It, it first uh, it first popped up on our radar screen after Hurricane Katrina, and there was disaster relief legislation to help stimulate the uh, the rebounding of businesses in that area of the country and golf courses were specifically excluded from uh, eligibility in that economic stimulus, uh, along with other industries that are referred to, we're on this, what's referred to as a sin list in Washington. It's, it's deep in the, in the tax code, the RS tax code. And uh, and so, yeah, so that was the first time the golf industry was aware of it. And, uh, you know, we, we try to make the case, obviously, when a golf course is flooded and can't open, how is that any different than a restaurant or a hotel or what have you? And so, so for many years, including with our with our efforts on National Golf Day, it's, we our, our efforts have been to tell the story of the golf industry and how we'd like to be treated like any other industry. We don't want to be uh, called out for special treatment, uh, you know, when these things happen. And there, it was all based on a, an old premise and bias that that the golf industry is an elite, rich kind of uh, business. When the reality is, it's not. You know, it's a it's like we like to say a, a land rich, cash poor business. If you're in the public golf, you know especially if you're in the public golf business. And that's, you know, 75% of our industry. So we've had to educate Congress on this issue. And we've been successful 
and making sure that golf was not included in a couple of pieces of, of, of storm related legislation. But this was a biggie, Mark, with, with the pandemic. And thankfully, golf was not specifically excluded, although uh, private clubs that are organized under 501c7 tax status, which are member equity clubs or nonprofits, technically, they did not qualify for the payroll protection program. So, uh, so, so there's still a car, there's still a, a segment of the industry that was not able to participate in the the most attractive part of the uh, the CARES Act. So, um, but uh, we're understanding that subsequent efforts and legislative efforts may may cover all of the different nonprofit kinds that are out there. So that so those clubs may see relief soon. My guest is Jay Karen of the NGCOA. Jay, another program to, to speak on is the Payroll Protection Program. That's another critical program that has positively impacted businesses. Uh, it, in fact, I believe that it has helped uh, to, to allow many golf courses to, to remain open. Uh, is that the case? And, and is the, the PPP enough? Well, you know, I think the golf industry compared to a lot of other businesses, Mark, we we're fortunate in that many golf courses were allowed to stay open to a certain degree. I, I, that wasn't the case all across the country. There, there was closures for weeks, um, but in many places, golf courses could remain open for the fields of play, which meant that golf courses could sell tee times, which is the highest margin piece of business uh, in, in that small business of running a public golf course. And so that, that, that certainly helped keep the heartbeat alive. The, the payroll protection uh, funding uh, certainly is another a jolt, you know, of the uh, uh, to keep the, the the business alive as well. And you know, but there are, there are conditions on that. Obviously, it's a loan uh, that becomes forgivable if you're able to use if you're able to meet the conditions of the loan. And one of those conditions is that 75% of your of your proceeds from the loan have to be used on keeping your staff paid on payroll. And so that's a, that's a tough that's a tough thing for some folks to do when they're closed or having or, or mostly closed they can't keep the entire staff employed, and so um, in fact there are some restrictions on bringing people back. You know, there are some states that said you can only have essential workers there, which meant maybe just the superintendent to keep the the golf course alive and, and maintain. So I mean, is it enough? I guess you know it's 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 enough from what I can see, Mark that. We haven't seen this wide brush of closures, uh, you know, economic closures of golf courses where they had to shut down. So you can only you can only think that it's it's helpful, again, except for those private clubs that didn't qualify for it. But we hope that that will be remedied. You know, Jay, when we face challenging times like we like we have here of late, uh, the first reaction that many businesses have is to is to pull back, be a bit more conservative. Uh, but we've heard through this podcast and a number of the insights guests that we've had, uh, including, you know, superintendents and golf course construction leaders and the PGA, that now is actually a pretty good time to also be looking ahead. So what do you tell your members, especially those who have worked with or consider working with an ASGCA member to improve their courses and to, and to plan going forward? That's a good question. Um, you know, there's that old state, there's that old phrase in politics, never let a crisis, you know, go to waste, uh, never waste a good crisis. I think it, it was. it's like, yeah, I think, you know, I think there's some cynical, you know, interpretation of that, meaning like take advantage of the crisis if you can. But I, I believe what it originally meant was learn from it. Don't let it go to waste. What can you learn from the hardship and the challenge to 
either be prepared next time or better your operations or whatever it may be. And so I think what we're finding is golfers that were starved to play golf, that couldn't play golf, that came back to the course because of the, you know, the high demand was there. They were happy just to be out there. And all of a sudden, you know, people were questioning how important is course conditioning versus just being out there? Why are people out there playing golf? Is it, is it because, you know, this on the stint meter, the green can roll at 13, or is it because, you know, it's, it's beautiful out here and I'm with my friends and, and my family or what have you. So I think there's a reevaluation going on as to what's important um, with regard to the customer experience of golf. Perhaps it'll be temporary, Mark. We don't know, right? We don't know what's going to stick around and, and be perpetual after this experience, but certainly um, golf courses are having to maintain their operations with a skeleton crew. Okay. It's going to cause an owner operator to think, well, how, how can I be more efficient now? What, what can, what should I do differently um, based on those consumer expectations, based on what we can afford? And, you know, I mean, sometimes you think, gosh, I can't operate this facility without 25 full-time people and a full food and beverage operation and all of these things. When all of a sudden you realize, well, I can survive this, but what adjustments may I need to make now moving forward? So, you know, whether it's hiring an architect to help you figure out what needs to be different about this golf experience, uh, whether it's simplifying it or, as you know, Mark, you know, the multiple team movement and, and programming around that because possibly more families came out than ever before to discover golf. Well, if you've got seven sets of tees out there instead of three or four, then, you know, you're facilitating more enjoyment for those uh, green players, those new folks, right? So um, lots can be evaluated here. And, and I think I think the industry will learn from this more than possibly we learned from the uh, the recession of you know 08, 07, and 08. So I'm hearing uh, about uh, some positive, if small, steps on the legislative side. Uh, some full tea sheets, even if the the tea times are a little bit more spread out than they have been. Uh, perhaps families coming out to the courses a little bit more. There's, there are notes of optimism in, in what you're sharing and in the tone of your voice here with what, with what I'm hearing from you. And I guess that that's what you're probably feeding off of from your membership as well. Uh, yeah, I think so. We published an article too by one of our industry friends, Scott Merchant, uh, that he wrote. It was great. It was, it was basically saying now is this golden opportunity for golf because you know, we lament, we've lamented over the last 10 or 15 years about the rise in competition and other things to do out there besides golf. Well, we have, we've had this 10 week uh, opportunity or, or window, I should say, where everything else seemed to get shut down, where golf could remain open. So we, we were fortunate and, and to benefit from this uh, migration towards our game and our, in our experience. So let's not squander it. It's, it's a, it's a gift, honestly. So, um, my hope is is that uh, it, it's a um, it'll be a harbinger for change. That in, in looking at what again going back to what I said, prioritizing why are people coming out? And Mark, telling the truth, the last time we saw this kind of I would say spike in interest in the game, you could argue was the Tiger effect back in the late '90s. That that you had this Pied Piper that brought this enthusiasm and attraction to the game, which which uh, precipitated people trying it and. And then what we saw 10 years later, a lot of people walking away from the game too. What I like about this is that people are coming to the game for the very reasons that they stick around and play forever. Whereas if you came to the game because of a Tiger Woods character, that's not the reason why you stick around for 30 or 40 years playing the game. 
right? And so the, the organic uh, demand that we've seen driven recently is for the a, for sustainable reasons. I think so. I think uh, my my hope is my optimism is that the, that it'll um, it'll last a lifetime rather than just maybe a, a three year bump. And a phrase that I've heard you use a number of times here during our conversation, and uh, that's uh, that's not owned alone by the golf course operators, uh, is a player experience, and that's and that's what we're all interested in, isn't it? Well, that's what we're selling, right? We're, I mean, yeah, we're selling uh, green grass and, and and nice turf and 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 so forth, but ultimately, we're we're selling an experience. We're we're in the entertainment business. We're in the sports business. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's, that's what, that's why people keep coming back you know, for a lifetime is the experience of it. So, yeah. So we have, and there are a lot of people in our industry now really studying the consumer experience and what's important and what's not. USGA is doing some study with the, with the University of Wisconsin Stout folks to analyze the customer experience in depth to understand what the drivers of satisfaction are and what the drivers of dissatisfaction are. Anxious to see, uh, uh, what that study um, proves uh, so that we can minimize those drivers of dissatisfaction. You know, Mark, I was in the, I was in the lodging industry for a number of years and, you know, you can look at the things that drove satisfaction when you stayed at a wonderful property, but it really was helpful to understand what drove dissatisfaction. So if you, if you checked into a room and, and the first thing you saw in the bathroom was a big hair and what well, it's a visceral reaction. Like, Oh my gosh, this is terrible. No matter how good everything else is. If you saw, one hair on a pillow or what have you think this place is dirty. It was a high driver of dissatisfaction. There are things like that in the golf industry that we're studying that what causes people to leave the game, that visceral, visceral reaction that people can have uh, when they're trying something out, why would they leave? And to try to study that a little bit and maybe uh, mitigate and minimize those, those uh, experiences. And it's not simply in golf, but there's an awful lot that can be learned by simply asking your customer. That's true, you know, <laughs> or observing them. Sometimes observing them is better than asking them uh, because, you know, people will sometimes tell you what you want to hear. But if there's a way to do obs observational research, that's to, that, is, that is the best kind. My guest has been the CEO of the National Golf Course Owners Association, Jay Karen. Jay, thank you for your time today. Pleasure, Mark. Uh, that concludes this episode of ASGCA Insights. I'm Mark Whitney. You can find past episodes of this podcast and more information about golf course architecture at asgca.org. Thank you for listening, and until next time, so long.